Good stuff. Wow. Love those songs. John chapter 16 tonight, verse 16. John 16, beginning at verse 16. We're looking tonight at the last words of Jesus to his followers before he goes to the cross. Now, in the next two weeks, we're going to be looking at John 17, but that's Jesus' prayer. That's when he goes into the Garden of Gethsemane and he pours out his heart to the Father. And so these tonight are the last words that Jesus shares with his followers before he begins to pray in the Garden the night that he is betrayed, arrested, and eventually goes to the cross. Also, just want to mention this. Um... Just as a reminder, and for those of you that maybe don't know, that uh, each Monday we release a new blog on a psalm. We're going through the psalms. And so I think this Monday we just released uh, our, our blog on Psalm 15. And so each week that comes out. Also our podcast, all our messages from Tuesday night's series and Sunday uh, are up there on the podcast. And uh, if, if you want to listen to them again or... You, you have someone that you feel would be encouraged by the Word of God, certainly that's a great way to, to get the Word of God out. So tonight, I'm so excited to share this passage. The only problem is, I just, there's no way I'm going to do this justice. I mean, there's, there's so much, there's so many good things in this passage that, that I feel like God has spoken to me about. I just don't know whether I'm going to be able to communicate it or articulate it. So please pray as I start to talk tonight, that these will truly be the words that God wants me to share and that that Jeff Royce won't get in the way of what truth, what tremendous truth is in this passage tonight. The first thing I want to share is this. Beginning in chapter 16, verse 16, Jesus, I I look at these couple verses, I think it's through verse 19, is what I call the in the little while passage. Because it's like, it seems like for all these times, the disciples and Jesus is using the phrase in a little while, in a little while. What does that have to do with what Jesus just talked about last week? Here's the point I want to make. When we get into this passage tonight, we're going to see that the disciples just don't get what Jesus is talking about. Okay? They, they don't quite understand. So I want to make that point. Jesus is the one teaching here. You couldn't have a better teacher than Jesus Christ. And yet, the greatest teacher in the world... The disciples aren't able to totally capture what Jesus is saying. And the reason I want to start there is because, again, context is so important when we study the Word of God. And last week, we ended with the fact that Jesus said, look, it's to your advantage that I go away. Because when I go away, I'm going to send the the comforter, the helper, the advocate, the Holy Spirit into your life. And He's not only going to be with you, He's going to be in you. And He will teach you all things. He will guide you into all truth. And the cool thing that Jesus is showing them here is how powerful the ministry of the Holy Spirit is going to be in their life to be able to understand spiritual truth. In fact, I'm just going to make this statement. I don't think we as Christians really understand the ministry of the Holy Spirit and how He helps us to understand the Word of God like He does. I think sometimes that we we might read a passage and we think, oh, wow. It's becoming clear. I'm getting it now. No, I think it's the ministry of the Holy Spirit that is illuminating us and helping us to see things that we never saw and helping us to see the relationship between things. And that's the connection here. Because right after Jesus talks about the Holy Spirit's going to come and He's going to be able to guide you into all truth. He's going to teach you. Now Jesus says these words. John 16, 16. In a little while, 
you will see me no longer. Again, after a while, you will see me. Now, I think particularly in this verse, what Jesus is saying, remember, he's preparing his disciples for what's to come. And I think he's saying, look, guys, in a little while, Greek word is micros, where we get the word micro from, small, little. In a little while, you're not going to see me. In a little while, you're going to see me. I think he's referring to his post-resurrection appearances. That he is going to literally be gone from them for a few days, but in three days he's going to rise again, and they're going to literally see him again in a short time. Now, what was causing confusion is, remember back in John 14, he talked about the fact that he was soon going to go away and prepare a place for them. And then after a while, he was going to come back and receive them to be where he was and all of that. And I think in the disciples' minds, they're like, okay, is this... So, like, you're just going to be away for a little while, and when you come back, then you're going to set up your kingdom. And, and so, again, they're having a hard time reconciling all this and putting the pieces together. And the reason, again, why I want to emphasize this is, this is why Jesus said the Holy Spirit must come. Because the Holy Spirit in your lives, once, once I go to the Father for good, and I ascend back to glory, and I send the Holy Spirit... He's going to be able to help you put all these pieces together and it's all going to make more sense. And folks, I can just tell you that in my life, that the Holy Spirit, if I, if I get anything out of the Word of God, it's through the Holy Spirit and, and you too. And we, we cannot discount, we cannot minimize how powerful the ministry of the Holy Spirit is in helping us to understand what God said. So notice verse 17, then some of his disciples said to one another, what is the meaning of what he is saying in a little while you will not see me again after a little while you will see me and because i'm going to the father so they kept on repeating what is the meaning of what he says in a little while we do not understand what he's talking about again don't miss this jesus is preparing his disciples he's getting ready to go to the cross there's no greater teacher than jesus christ and yet they're not getting it they're not grasping it they're not understanding it they're not seeing the relationship because the holy spirit hasn't come upon them yet and jesus has said when the holy spirit comes all this is going to begin to make sense so in a sense jesus even understands the things that i'm sharing with you now you're not going to totally grasp but once the events begin to unfold and the Holy Spirit comes into your life, then the light bulb's going to come on. Now, I love this, though, verse 19. Jesus could see that they wanted to ask him about these things. He knew they didn't understand. But he also knew, like many of us, that even though we don't understand things all the time, we also don't want to ask. We, we want to pretend like we know and we feel stupid if we ask questions and whatever. Human beings have always been that way. Can I just say, there are no stupid questions. And God would rather us ask questions of Him or seek the truth if we really don't know it than to pretend like we know it. Because He wants us to know. And I think it also shows here that not only, obviously, even in His humanity was Jesus, Jesus quite intuitive, but... Obviously, he's the son of God. He knew what was in their hearts and what was in their minds without them ever saying anything. And then notice what he says. Are you asking each other about this? That I said in a little while, you will not see me. And again, after a little while, you will see me. And the reason that's important is because do you think any of those disciples were helping any of the other disciples figure this out? No. In fact, 
The words, are you asking, literally mean to seek in order to find or to aim at. In other words, they were trying to find the answer, but they weren't going to the right source or to the right place to find the answer. They were going to people who were just as confused and didn't have any more understanding about things than they did. As I like to say many times, that's what's the danger about being part of a Bible study of any kind where you don't have someone that has some kind of of handle on the scriptures. Because what ends up happening in those kind of Bible studies is exactly what was happening here with the disciples. Mutually shared ignorance. None of them knew. And so they're all sitting around going, well, I think this is what it means. What do you think? Well, I don't know. I think it means this. And all that Bible study, all that, it means nothing. In fact, a lot of times, all it does is cause people more confusion or it, it, it sets people in, in their own wrong interpretation even longer. Because there's nobody there who can say, no, wait a minute, let's look at what the Word of God really says about this and let's look at what this really means. And unless you have somebody like that, you and I end up like the disciples. We're going to other human beings who have no more understanding of the situation than what we do, and somehow we think we're going to find the answer. And the one who had the answer, Jesus Christ, was standing right in front of them, and they were too prideful to ask. Even though they didn't know, they didn't want to ask. Verse 20. I tell you the solemn truth. You will weep and wail, but the world will rejoice. Jesus said, here's what's going to come. Here's what's going to rock your world, disciples. What about, what is about to happen to me is going to cause you unbelievable pain and grief. That's what weeping, wailing And notice he says, this is a solemn truth. This is firm and faithful. You can bank on it. This is going to happen. What's about to happen is you're going to go through pain and grief. But guess what? The world, those who are alienated from God, those who are hostile to the cause of Christ, they're going to be happy. Wow, that's not something necessarily very encouraging to say to his followers. But again, remember... He's not sugarcoating what's about to happen because it's going to be tough. But here's the really cool thing that I want you to see tonight. You will be sad, full of sorrow and pain is what the word sad means. But your sadness, don't miss this. This is one of the key keys tonight. Your sadness, your pain, sorrow and grief will turn into joy. That's one of the key principles that Jesus wants to share with his followers before he goes to the cross. He says, look, guys, here's what you got to understand. In a few hours, you're going to go through something very horrific, painful for you. For those who hate me, they're going to throw a party. But you've got to understand something. You've got to let this process continue to go. You can't just stay there. You can't judge from just that perspective. You can't just look at things from where that is. You've got to let God turn it. Because God can turn 
your source of pain, sorrow, and grief into joy. Notice, Jesus isn't saying that God will remove sorrow. He will, he will help us to escape from sorrow and pain. Because that's not realistic. That's not what life's going to be. He doesn't even say that God is going to replace our sorrow and pain with joy. He says God is going to turn our sorrow. He's going to transform the very thing that caused the sorrow, pain, and grief into an occasion for joy. What a promise to his followers. The word turn is a very key word here. It is a word that speaks about the creative, miracle-working power of God. The creative acts of God. The miracle-working power of God. In other words, what Jesus is saying is, those who claim to follow God, we must always, always know and understand and trust that our God can turn the sources of our pain, grief, and sorrow in our life, and they can be made, they can become a, a source of joy, an occasion for joy. But we've got to let that process go a little while. Now, here, the disciples weren't going to have to wait too long. Three days, and they were going to see the risen Jesus. And even at that point, obviously, all their grief, pain, and sorrow was going to be turned to joy when they saw the risen Jesus. But Jesus here is laying down a principle for us that was so important. That he's saying, look, God isn't always going to prevent us from going through things in our life that cause us sorrow, pain, and grief. But what God does promise us is if we will let him take us through this process, that in this process of however long God wants to take, He can, in His creative, miracle-working way and power, He can turn the very thing that has caused sorrow, pain, and grief into our life into an occasion of joy. But we've got to trust God in that and allow Him to take us through the process. And that's what Jesus is trying to get His disciples to see. Don't get caught up in what you're experiencing now. Keep looking ahead to what God is going to do with that to where one day you're going to be able to look at that from a completely different perspective. I don't know what you may be going through right now. Maybe you've just went through something very bad. Maybe you're getting ready to go through something, or me too, and we don't even know it yet. I don't know, but, but I know this, that Jesus is teaching me here that I need to trust in a God who can turn the source of my pain, grief, and sorrow in this life into an occasion of joy. God can do that because He's a creative, miracle-working God. Now, Jesus uses an earthly example, something that at least the disciples and us can, can maybe wrap our minds a little bit around to go, okay, I, I can sort of see how that does work. Verse 21. When a woman gives birth, she has distress, to say the least, because her time has come. But when her child is born, she no longer remembers. Now, I stop there because every woman that I've ever done this, she's like, whoa, wait a minute. What do you mean we don't remember? Again, we've got to study. The word remember here doesn't mean no longer remember or forget. What it means is, I no longer focus there. That's not my focus. That's not what I'm primarily 
calling up in my mind. That's not what I'm making mention of and talking about. When the child is born, she no longer focuses on the suffering, on the severe pressure that she went through in order for the child to be born because of her joy that the human being has been born into the world. In other words, Jesus is simply saying that he's not minimizing the pain that you gals go through in birthing a baby. What he is saying is this. Once the baby is born, even though that pain has been unbelievable, the focus goes from the pain to the baby. And Jesus is saying, That's what you need to keep in mind when you go through those hard times in life where you're under severe pressure and you're going through sorrow and pain and grief. You need to let your God continue to go through this process of turning what right now is causing you sorrow and pain into an occasion of joy where you will look at it so much differently. But we've got to let God, the Creator, miracle-working God, turn it. And sometimes that takes time. And that's where our faith has to kick in. To let God have the time to turn our sorrow into joy. Wow, what a tremendous truth. I mean, to think that even those painful things that you and I go through in life, that's, that's not what we should ever allow to define us. And we should never look at those painful times as that that's just it. it. It's sort of an end in itself. See, with God in our lives, the sorrow, pain, and grief in our life is never an end in itself. It is an occasion for the miracle, creative, great God to turn it into an occasion for joy in some way. And Jesus is simply saying, this is going to be a great thing for you guys to go through. Because in a few hours, when you see me hanging on the cross, and you see all those from the crowds that cried out, crucify him, crucify him, who hate me, and they're rejoicing because I'm dead, and all my followers are full of sorrow, pain, and grief, Jesus says, give it a little time. It's going to turn. I mean, think about this even in the terms of a couple weeks ago, we talked about the glory that awaits us. All the people who reject Christ on earth right now, man, they think this is all there is and that we Christians are pretty stupid for committing our lives to to Christ and to living for eternity and laying up treasure in heaven. But guys, all it's going to take is for Jesus to come and all of a sudden that's going to turn. And one day when we're in glory for all of eternity and they're sitting there, if they never turn to Christ with nothing, all of a sudden it turns. It turns and it can turn in such a short amount of time. Think about the story of Jesus in Luke 16 where he said, hey, the rich man, he he had everything he wanted, but one day his life was required. And then Lazarus, a follower of mine who had very little on earth, His life was also required, and Lazarus was in heaven, enjoying glory, and the rich man was in torment, even wanting Abraham, who he was talking to, to somehow dip a finger into some cold water and and soothe his torment. How quickly it turned. You think of the story of Jesus talking to the young man who was seeking, but would not give up his wealth and, and all that he had accumulated and, 
And Jesus turned to him and said, you fool, tonight, tonight, your soul is going to be required of you. And how quickly that was going to turn. So Jesus here is saying, trust in a God who can turn things, turn sorrow into joy. So then he goes on, verse 22. So also you have sorrow now, grief and pain, difficulty now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take, rob, steal your joy away from you. See, Jesus is saying, when I come back to you and you finally embrace me for who I am, He said, no one will ever be able to rob or take or steal that from you. See, when when the disciples saw the risen Christ, when they saw Jesus come back from the dead, it was like, okay, it doesn't matter now. When they experienced Jesus with that kind of reality, It didn't matter what the world did. It didn't matter about rejection. It didn't matter about something. Because we know all of these guys ended up dying for their faith. And yet they died joyful. Because they had seen Jesus. And they, they had seen through the ministry of the Spirit the greater realities that were out there that were so much greater than the illusion and deception that the world and Satan wants to have our way. And so Jesus is saying, when you get the reality of me in your life, and it doesn't even have to be in this context of physically seeing the risen Jesus, because Jesus comes to us through the Holy Spirit. And Jesus simply saying even to us, when, when my reality is truly captured in your life, no one will be able to steal, rob, or take away your joy. Because you will be so connected to me, in fellowship with me, that no matter what is happening around you, no matter where the world goes, no matter what is happening, there is such a connection with me, and I will never leave you nor forsake you, I will not abandon you in any way, that no one can ever steal, take, or rob you of that joy. Wow, what a promise to his followers. And to us as well. At that time, verse 23, you will ask me nothing because I'm no longer around. And now Jesus is going to turn to the fact that he wants to now transition the disciples to get used to going to the father. He said, look, you've had me around for three years. You wanted to ask me something if you did or you wanted something. I was right there. But here's what you've got to understand. Even though I'm going away and I'm not physically there, we're there. God the Father, God the Spirit, God the Son, we're all right there. And we're going to work on your behalf. And all you have to do, even when I'm not physically present, is just ask. Because God the Father is for you just as much as God the Son is for you, just as much as God the Holy Spirit is for you. And that's what Jesus wanted to get them to see. Remember, now something we don't appreciate very much as New Testament Christians Jesus also had to transition the mindset of the disciples of coming out of the Old Testament age of of going to God through sacrifice and through going to the temple. And now Jesus is reminding them, when I die and the veil of the temple is torn in two, no more sacrifice. Because the one and only sacrifice for sin that was all needed of all time has been done. You now can go directly to the Father and you can ask Him for what you need. Well, you got to understand... For, for a Jew, 
in this day and age, I was like, whoa, wait a minute. I, I can go directly to God? You mean I don't have to go through the priest? You mean I don't have to bring any more sacrifices? You mean I don't have to go to the temple? You mean me, individually? I can just go directly to God? Jesus, Yeah, through what Jesus has done, all of us have the privilege of going directly to God. Which is why he says, I tell you the solemn truth, verse 23, whatever you ask, whatever you require, the Father in my name, I like to say for my name, because the reason why, again, Jesus uses in my name is it has to be, uh, it has to go along with who Jesus is. The name of somebody in the Bible embodied all that they were in character and nature. So when Jesus uses the phrase in my name, he's simply saying, that's not something I just tack on to the end of the prayer in order to get what I want. When I pray in Christ's name, I'm praying in a way that is in agreement with who Christ is and what Christ desires and what his will is. And when we pray, obviously lined up there, then Jesus says, oh, God, the Father will give you whatever you want. He will supply, he will furnish what is necessary for you. Verse 23, that's what the word give means, to supply or furnish what is necessary. Now notice verse 24, until now you've not asked for anything in my name because you didn't need to. I was here. So Jesus, again, is getting them used to what this new thing's going to look like. But he said, ask, ask, make a request and you will receive it so that your joy may be complete. Jesus says, could it get any better than this? That whatever you need on your journey, whatever you need in my name, in order to do God's will, all you have to do is ask the Father and he will give it and you can begin to see God work. In fact, you can even do that as you go through times of pain and sorrow and ask God to turn them to joy and see how God, when, when God is all that we have in these situations and we see that, that God is all that we need and how he can turn these situations and how that can turn into even joy in our lives as we see God work in our lives, Jesus says it doesn't get any better than that. And he wants them to get used to going to the Father and asking. Jesus says in verse 25, I've told you these things in obscure figures of speech, literally symbols and pictures, is what the Greek. A time is coming when I will no longer speak to you in symbols and pictures, but will tell you plainly without the use of figures and comparisons about the Father. See, Jesus here is also sharing with them, in a sense, steps of spiritual maturity. That, that obviously baby Christians even, and, and as we get, you know, we need more stories and we need more symbols and we need more illustrations and we need more sort of diagrams and pictures. But Jesus says, you will know that you're starting to grow and mature in your faith when you don't always need all the pictures and symbols, but when we don't have to use all that and we can just speak without the use of that. Jesus says, that's what the goal is. 
At that time, verse 26, you will ask in my name, and I do not say that I will ask the Father on your behalf. Not, not that Jesus doesn't want to pray for us. The Bible teaches he's always interceding for us. He's simply saying, look, you don't need me to ask the Father for you. You can go directly to the Father because of what I have done. Which is why he says, verse 27, the Father himself loves you. You know what's very interesting though? I just assumed, and this is why I study every word, I just assumed that the word love there in verse 27 was the word agape. It's not. Very interestingly, in the Greek New Testament, it's the word phileo. And what Jesus here is saying, though, is sort of cool. He's saying, yes, the Father agape loves you. He loves you supremely, sacrificially, self, you know, that, that the greatest of love, agape love. But Jesus here is saying, you know what? The Father loves you in a phileo, sort of a friendship, affectionate type of way, too. In a sense, the way I like to lay it, Jesus is saying, God the Father not only loves you, He likes you. Because this phileo in the Greek means to treat with affection and kindness. It's, it's, the, it's the word that's used for friendship. And Jesus says, here's why the Father is so affectionate towards you. Because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. One of the things that, one of the things that makes a strong friendship is shared affections. And Jesus simply saying, you know why God the Father loves you, in a sense, in that kind of way? Because you and Him have shared affections. You love me, and guess what? He loves me. And you believe in me, and, and God the Father loves the fact that you believe in me. And so there's that shared affection. And He says, God the Father loves you. He loves you as much as I do, as much as the Holy Spirit does. So you don't need to like somehow think that uh, when you go to God the Father and ask Him for something in my name, that somehow He's going to be reluctant to give you. He's for you as much as I am or the Spirit is, which is again what Jesus has said all along. All three of us in the Trinity are working together for your benefit. Up to verse 28, because I've got to get through this. I came from the Father and entered into the world, but in turn, I'm leaving the world and going back to the Father. His disciples said, Ah, look now. Now you're speaking plainly and not in obscure figures of speech. Now we know that you know everything and do not need anyone to ask you anything. Because of this, we believe that you have come from God. In other words, verse 30, they know. They, they've got a little bit better understanding. Okay? Important point. Jesus replied, do you now believe? That's an important point. Do you now place full confidence and trust in me? Jesus is making a very important distinction here. As much as turning sorrow into joy, the other important thing here, before we wrap this up, is, is Jesus says there's a difference between knowing that we think somehow knowing about a certain thing is going to help and believing. There's a difference. There's a difference. There's a difference. They knew more about what was happening 
But Jesus is going to go on to say, look, a time is coming and has come when you will be scattered. You will literally fly in every direction terrified, each one to his own home, and I'll be left alone. You say you get it, disciples. You say you understand. And you may have a greater understanding and knowledge of what's going on a little bit, but are you believing? And there's a difference between knowing and believing. And if anybody could share that from personal experience, it's me. And we Christians need to remind ourselves of that. That's why I can't just go to Bible studies and study the Bible and stuff for an increase in knowledge if the knowledge that I'm gaining isn't leading to a greater faith and trust and confidence in Jesus. Or else, there's a disconnect. That's why I'm just going to share my own personal struggle and testimony. That's why for years I struggled with anxiety. It wasn't, folks, because I didn't know what the Bible said. It wasn't that I couldn't quote you verses. It wasn't that I couldn't quote Philippians 4, 8, and 9. It wasn't that I couldn't quote John 16, 33. I could quote all the verses. I knew them. But there was a disconnect in my life at that season between what I knew and what I believed. And that's what Jesus is making an important differentiation here. That we can know things in our head, but if we're truly not resting in it, trusting in it, believing in it, it doesn't help. And that's why Christians can struggle with all the different things that we struggle with, because a lot of times it's not that we need more knowledge, it's that we need to trust more in the knowledge, if you will, that we already have. And that's what Jesus is saying. You, you, you think you believe? In a few hours, you guys are going to cut and run. Not because you don't know what's coming. I've told you what's coming. But because your faith isn't there. And can I remind all of us, where does the Bible say our faith is built and strengthened? Through the Word of God. That's why we've got to continue to get into the Word of God. That's what will build our faith and strengthen our trust and confidence in Jesus. All right, I want to end here because this is great. I, I want to end with this. Give me, give me a couple minutes. Verse 33. I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. So important. Peace. The tranquility and quiet confidence that God wants to build in our lives. But Jesus is saying, notice something, in me is the only way we can have it. We don't have it through absence of pain, sorrow, and grief. Because we already saw early on in a chapter that God is going to allow sometimes in our life pain, sorrow, and grief because He's going to turn it into an occasion for joy. But even here, Jesus is going to teach that in the world you're going to have tribulation. My peace is going to coexist with all kinds of trouble always swirling around. And what we have to do as Christians is to get used to the fact that God's peace can be enjoyed in the midst of a world full of tribulation. See, somehow as Christians, we're looking for this utopia on earth where we, there, the absence of tribulation. And Jesus says, no, no, no. No, that's not the Christian life on earth. The Christian life is you will be in me and in the world, but you cannot allow the world to be in you. In a sense, look at it like a boat. The boat is in the water, but it's trouble when the water's in the boat. The Christian is in the world, but the world isn't to be in the Christian. The, the world isn't to draw away or come between 
me and my Christ. And so Jesus here is saying, the only way a Christian can have peace is by being in me. And that doesn't talk about salvation. He's talking about fellowship. He's talking about abiding, as he's talked about through the Gospel of John. He's saying, you've got to rest. You've got to trust. You've got to believe. And when you're in me, you'll have peace. It's like Jesus saying, I'm the eye of the storm. In the world, you're going to have tribulation. All through your life, you're going to have pressures and trials and tribulation because that's the world. In fact, in my Bible, what I did to highlight it is I literally marked in me, in verse 33, and then in the world. In me, Jesus says, you may have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation. You will have trouble and suffering. Okay? And we're never going to get rid of the trouble and suffering and pain in the world. That's not going to happen. But Jesus is saying, you've got to picture me as the eye of the storm that throughout your life, as you move through life towards glory, that with all this tribulation and all this storms and all this stuff swirling around you that's going to be in the world, you've got to plant yourself in me in the eye of that storm and have that quiet confidence and calm composure and tranquility of mind that my peace will give you. But you can never look at it that somehow God is going to take away the tribulation that's in the world. That's never going to happen, folks. If we're looking for this utopia, this world that doesn't have tribulation, that's simply not biblical. Even from the lips of Jesus. But Jesus is saying, really cool here, that my peace will coexist with all the tribulation in the world. And that a Christian can, in a sense, move through the storms that are going to be in their world throughout their lifetime and still be at perfect peace when they are in Jesus. For Jesus says, take courage. This word is only used by Jesus in the New Testament. It means to be bold, to be confident, even daring. Why is Jesus using this concept of being courageous in the context of in the world you're going to have tribulation, in me you're going to have peace? I think for one reason, because you and I, if we know that in the world we're going to have tribulation and we're called to take the message of Christ and the light of Christ into the world, we know persecution's going to come and and tribulation, and Jesus already said the world's going to hate you. And so many times what Christians do is because, you know, they want, they want peace. But they don't want the peace that is enjoyed by being in Christ. They want sort of everything in their life to be, you know, a certain way that Jesus says, you'll back off and you won't be my witnesses. You won't go out there and witness and be the Christian that you should be because you're trying to create your own sort of false peace in this world. And Jesus is saying, no, no, no. I want you to get the idea that you can still experience a peace that passes all understanding without retreating from the world, but going into the world with courage, boldness, and even daring and taking the gospel to the world, this life-changing message, and still you'll be at peace. That, that's the message of the book of Acts. That's the message of the New Testament. That's the message of Paul. I can be thrown in jail. It doesn't matter. I'm at peace with my God, even though I've stirred up a bunch of trouble in the world. Jesus says, be strong, be courageous, be bold. I have conquered the world. The word conquered means to prevail, to overcome. Literally, the victory. Jesus says, I'm the victory. 
In me is the victory. I've prevailed. I've overcome the world. And because I have, you will too. Our victory, we share, obviously, or I should say it this way, Jesus shares his victory over the world with us, the saints of God. And so therefore, Jesus is saying, there is nothing in this world that you should ever encounter that overcomes or prevails over you. If you are my child and I have overcome the world and you are in me, then there should be nothing that you and I can't overcome, can't prevail over, can't get victory over because I've overcome it all. What a great encouragement to these disciples who were about ready to see their master hanging on the cross. But Jesus says, here's what you need to know. Your God can turn your sorrow into joy. Your God is willing and ready to answer your requests on my behalf. Your God is going to send God the Holy Spirit into your life to guide you into all truth. Your God has overcome the world. In this God, you can have peace. In the world, you're always going to have trouble and suffering and pressure. And, but in me, in me, you can have peace. May each of us find that place of peace in our lives in this world of tribulation. Let's pray. God, thank you for these wonderful truths tonight. We thank you, God, for the preparation that you gave to your own disciples, but God, for the wonderful preparation that you give to us 2,000 years later. It is just as much needed, if not more needed today, for us to hear these words as well. So God, I pray tonight that maybe there's Someone here tonight, just like me, they knew what the Word of God said. They know what the Scriptures say. They know what they should do or what they shouldn't do. But it's not a matter of not knowing, just like the disciples. It's a matter of trusting. It's a matter of believing. It's a matter of resting. And God, it's only when we rest in You that we truly experience Your peace in the midst of all the tribulations swirling around us in this world. You literally are the eye of the storm. That as we move through life, there will always be upheaval and things going on around us. But yet you call us to come into your presence and to rest in that place of fellowship with you where we can experience and enjoy such quiet tranquility, such calm, still waters. And be quietly confident as we face each day. God, I pray tonight for all of us and for us as a church that we would heed the message of Jesus. And that we would not retreat 
and back down and back off being the witnesses and the Christians that we need to be. But to have courage, to be bold, to be daring in our witness for you and in our worship of you and not be ashamed of the gospel of Christ for as Paul says, it is the power of God unto salvation. Help us, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Folks, thanks for being here tonight. See you on Sunday.